This episode, I'm joined by Mark Sedgwick, who is a British historian specialising in the study of traditionalism, Islam and Sufi mysticism. In this episode, we discuss his book, Western Sufism, From the Abbasids to the New Age, alongside discussions on Neoplatonism, J.G. Bennett, George Gurdjieff and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Hermetics and keep the podcast going indefinitely for as little as $2.50 a month, please find links in the description below. A little does go a long way. Also, if you would like to become part of the community, there are also links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Mark Sedgwick, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Uh, we are going to be discussing your book, Western Sufism, From the Abbasids to the New Age, which was published by uh, Oxford University Press, I believe, in 2016. Yes, something like that. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is a book which obviously is dealing with Western Sufism and sort of bringing in the history of Sufism in general from sort of the Neoplatonic tradition all the way through to probably the latest... Well, the the most recent clear current we could find in the West is that of J.G. Bennett, maybe the and Idris Shah, a short time yeah. after that with sort of um and the stuff he was doing with was it Hexa Octagon Press? Octagon, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, almost Press. up, almost up to the present day, but not quite up to the present day because there's so much going on at present that 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 would have been almost impossible to cover. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm sure we'll get to that. And Idris Shah is someone I've been looking into recently since I ever came since I came across the book The People of the Secret, which is like yes. if you've heard of that, there's sort of a strange three authors going on and believed to be Idris Shah. But there we go. Um, so before we jump in with the book, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, and how this book came about. Because I sort of got the impression from reading the beginning that you have a a personal relationship with Sufism that might go back quite some time, or am, am I wrong in that? Well, I mean, I you know, I I I write as a scholar, so um, I mean, I I, I have uh, I have a certain sympathy with Sufism, which is good since it's the topic that I spent quite a lot of my professional academic career on. So it's all it's always nice to be able to work with something that that, that you that you actually like and enjoy as well. Um, I mean I'm you know I've, I've for the last however many years I've been a, a professional historian uh, first at the American University in Cairo, currently at Aarhus University, and working with Islam and working with with Sufism. Initially Sufism in the Middle East, that's what I did my PhD on. And over over recent years, I'm working more and more on Sufism in the West and related currents in the West, which uh, I find people are actually more interested in, I think. I mean, I have I have an amazing book about Sufism in the Sudan, but you know, nobody seems to want to read it. Um, the the way this book came about is well, as I said, I've you know I've been working with with this topic for many years. Um, what I, what I thought is that treatments of 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 Sufism in the West, people tend to write about a particular Sufi order. Um, and even if they're writing more than about more than one Sufi order, it, it tends to be very, very sort of present oriented. As as as, and you know, I'm I'm trained as a historian, but 
that's one reason why I thought I should write a history of it. But, but I think it's also important to see quite how far back the West's relationship with Sufism goes. And it, this, over the years, as, as I was researching this, this is something that, that, uh, that's, that surprised me to find quite how back, far back it goes. So that's really why I thought that, that I should write this book. I mean, from the Abbasids, of course, there wasn't really uh, a West in, in those days, uh, but that's just to make the point of how far back it goes and, and, uh, and, and, and what it's based on. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's, even, even from that, there is a lot of questions I could dig into, especially the, regarding the East and West divide. But I have to, I like to get the Hermetics question out of, uh, out of here at the start. So we sort of maybe have three thinkers that influence you that you think about a lot that we can bring in later. Uh, I see you're already smiling. Everyone loves this question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I had to put into that room René Guénon, who is probably the thinker I've spent most time working on through, throughout my career. And then I thought that I'd put in a room with him, somebody who I've just finished a project on, who is known either as Ivan Ageli or Abdulhedi Ageli and who was a Swedish painter who became Muslim and then became Sufi and wrote a lot uh, about about Sufism in about 1910 and who spent a lot of his his life living in Cairo. Uh, So he went from Sweden to Cairo. I've gone from Cairo to Denmark. Uh, So I have a a certain fellow feeling with him. And then I thought, well, who do we we put in the room to talk with these two? And I thought it'd be interesting to have somebody a bit more contemporary. And my candidate there, if he he cares to accept it, is a man called Abdul Hakim Murad, who is also known as Timothy Winter. And he's he's an English guy in Cambridge who runs a a small organisation called the Cambridge Muslim College, I think it's called. And he he knows these, these, these thinkers, so that'd be a good start. But he's also somewhat critical of them. So I think he would make a very good third party in in that conversation. Okay, so do you think that Hegelian Genon would sort of, they would form a, they would be almost on the defensive against Winter there? I think, I mean, he, yeah, I... I, I I mean, if if he was, I, I think he, if he wasn't being too polite, <laughs> uh, which he might be, because you know he himself is a Sufi and Adeb, and you know these guys are at least a hundred years older than him, so he'd have to treat them with some respect. Um, I, 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 he, he, there are a number of criticisms he would bring up, but I think he also appreciates some of some of their perspectives a lot. So that's why I think it'd be a good conversation. So is he? So is he, I understand that Gainon eventually became Sufi, and I'm assuming that Hegeli did as well. So has each one of those people had that journey? They weren't, you know, inherently in the culture, so to speak. Exactly. Oh, yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Which is something that would bring them together. Do you think there's some differences as to how they 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 got to that stage you know how they eventually 
reached the conclusion that they should follow that path? Yes, I mean, I, th- I think Agelli, because he was he was first and foremost a painter, mm-hmm. and there's there's this almost tradition with painters that they're they're trying to work out what lies beneath the surface of reality. So quite a lot of painters go off on sort of spiritual esoteric quests, which uh, brings them to various different places and that brought brought Ageli to, to, to Islam and to Sufism. Whereas Guénon started off with philosophy and he went from philosophy into esotericism and, and then actually met Ageli in Paris and that's that's how he first got interested in, in Sufism. I'm not so sure about Abdul Hakim Murad actually. I, don't, I mean he's not a painter so um, but he might he might have started off as a philosopher. I wouldn't surprise me. So, do you think that conversation would go anywhere else other than Sufism, or do you think it would, they would? I think I think that they would end up talking about modernity. Okay, okay. Are they all are they all in sort of somewhat of the same agreement, or is there some clear differences? Yeah, I mean, they're all they're all they're all about criti- They're all a bit critical of modernity. Again, I'm very critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ageli critical more of Western imperialism, I think, most of the time. Um, Abdul Hakim Murad is is on the one hand quite critical of modernity, but he's also quite big on the idea that people have to engage in a positive fashion with the world that they're living in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so there's sort of a difference in their appreciation of the perennial, the perennial, perennial idea that you shouldn't have to change any everything to fit your um, current. That you should be able to work with everything in yeah. the world. So, so Gainon really, he, he, you would say he maybe wanted to alter that in some sense. Gainon thought that the modern world was reaching the point of final dissolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was profoundly pessimistic and couldn't quite, I mean he changed his mind over his career, whether it was far too late to do anything about this or whether there was some hope of saving something from the general wreck <laughs> of, of Western civilization. Um, whereas uh, Abdul Hakim Murad uh, is, um, is, is critical of elements of, of modernity but thinks that one can find a way of living in okay who do you mind if i ask who are you more sympathetic to <laughs> <laughs> i think abdul hakim murad okay. i don't see i don't see the western world as as on the point of collapse myself and for many of these people absolutely heretical but I think there are some good things about modernity. I mean, I, I wouldn't prefer to go to a dentist today than 150 years ago. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Okay, okay. I'm sure these thinkers will will come back in. But um, I sort of think we almost have to begin with one of the biggest questions in the study of almost, I guess you'd call it comparative philosophy, is the question of the East and West, because your book yeah. is is 
it shouldn't it sh- i guess it shouldn't be such a maybe difficult title but simply the title western sufism sufism sorry has so many implications i mean obviously well is there a difference between the east and western forms of sufism that's the big one and to a certain extent do you agree with that divide i mean do you agree with it generally and then do you agree with it in terms of sufism i mean i think i think that generally um historically one can make some sort of a West-non-West divide. Um, because the, the West does have certain things in common. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the, the, what, what people call the East, the non-West or the East, is incredibly diverse. So I think that one can make a, a, a West-non-West divide if one wants to say something about the West, especially if in practice, as people normally mean, and as I mean in this book as well, they mean the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- so I, th- I think if you know, if one if one's thinking about the US and Canada and Scandinavia and and, and the UK and you know Germany, but not going too far east. Um, about that that area, one can say certain things which hold true of, of that particular area. But now East, which contains everything from India to Japan um, and, and, and um, some islands in the Pacific that I'm not quite sure I know anything about at all, one can't really talk usefully about, about the, the East. Uh, historically, I think, it's it's easier to talk about West and non-West today as a result of globalization. Mm-hmm. It it becomes less and less meaningful because the two the bit of the non-West that I'm most interested in, which is is the Muslim world and especially the Arab world, is is getting so mixed up with the West in various ways uh, that 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 you can't really make that distinction today in the way that one could have made it in 1920. So that's the the general question. As far as as Sufism is concerned, I think that one can make a, a, a useful distinction because Sufism has is is something which takes particular forms in particular places at particular times so i think one can talk about 18th century egyptian sufism Mm -hmm. being different from late 20th century egyptian sufism Mm -hmm. and in exactly that way one can talk about western sufism because you know it or, not, or 20th century Western Sufism, or in fact early 21st century Western Sufism. You know this this is a phenomenon that that has certain characteristics, and some of the some of the differences derive simply from the fact that in in the West Muslims are in a minority, mm-hmm. whereas in the Muslim world. By definition, Muslims are in a majority, so that puts that puts Sufism in, in in a different position in the Western world and and in the Muslim world. And then there are also differences uh, connected to education. 
I mean, far more, far more people in the contemporary West have had a high quality education in the humanities mm-hmm. than in the typical Muslim country. So that's that's a difference. And also perhaps the parts of the West are 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 more globalized. That you know if you if you grow up in in a major Western city, you know, you've got some Christians and you've got some yoga and you've got some Gurdjieff and whereas Okay, I mean, there are certain social milieus in large Muslim cities where people have also know about yoga and Gurdjieff and so forth, mm-hmm. but they're much smaller than than they would be in in a major Western city. So I think there are differences in that respect. Okay, so it almost seems at this juncture reminiscent. I mean, just to just to bring it in of the Neoplatonic tradition, which. Starts with Plotinus through to Proclus, then Iamblichus, Ficino. As for a contemporary person, who knows? Um, but there's clear differences between those historic evolutions, yes. but they're all adhering to some underlying current. And is that sort of the same thing that's applying with Sufism? There's what could we say that that string is which connects them all? Well, I mean, for the, for, for the Neoplatonists, we have we have a basic way of looking at things, mm-hmm. which is consistent from you know from from Plotinus up to the present day, and with with Sufism, it's a bit more complicated than that because Neo, Neoplatonism is fundamentally a philosophical school, so it's a way of looking at things. Sufism has its own way of looking at things. It has its own philosophy or theology, in fact, you could call it. Uh, but, but Sufism isn't just a philosophy or a theology. Sufism is also a lot of organizations. It's also practices. It's also stories. Mm-hmm. What, what technically we, in the science of religions we call mythology. So S- Sufism is a much more complicated phenomenon than any particular school of, of philosophical or religious thought like, like Neoplatonism. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, perhaps perhaps we've jumped the gun. Um, wh- very basic question, I guess. What is Sufism for those who for those who don't know? So we have a base to work with as well. <laughs> oh, you ask that as if it's an easy question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, if you look it up in a dictionary, very often you'll be told that Sufism is is Islamic mysticism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, which isn't really true, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, certainly because we have two problems there. One of them is what on earth we mean by mysticism. But if once we've solved that problem, if by mysticism we mean something which is somewhat similar to Neoplatonism, and that's that's a, a, a definition that I would argue for. I'm not sure everybody mm-hmm. would agree with me, but I, I think that's that's certainly something that I would argue for. Um, 
if you want to find mysticism in Islam, go and talk to the Sufis. Mm-hmm. And that that is because Sufi theology is very much impacted by Islamic philosophy, and Islamic philosophy is very much impacted by late antique philosophy. So this the the, the Neoplatonic mysticism is an important element of Sufi theology. But as as I just said, there are also organizations, there are Sufi brotherhoods, um, as they're called, Tariqa in Arabic, and we tend to call it Sufi brotherhood in, in English, which is a bit unfortunate because it excludes the women, and there are also females who belong to Sufi brotherhoods. So um, that perhaps another term would be more appropriate. Uh, but there are, there, are, there are organizations and an awful lot of different sorts of people belong to these organizations. So if you go to a little village in, in, in the middle of nowhere, you'll find some Sufis who are uh, farmers and who quite possibly never went to school mm-hmm. or have forgotten everything they ever learned at school and, and are Ill- illiterate. Mm-hmm. And clearly these guys are not reading difficult philosophical understandings of, of, of theology. What are they for in, in it for? Well, it's a form of religious practice for mm-hmm. them. It's a form of companionship even. This is very important in, in, in religious phenomena sometimes. You know, it's a, it's a social phenomenon. And also, uh, it's it's connected to, to to various other varieties of, of, of religious practice. So, it's it's a very multifaceted phenomenon. Okay, okay. I once read Alfred Arage say that the difference between a philosopher and a mystic: a philosopher is being through knowledge, and then a mystic is knowledge through being. So uh-huh. that you're working out the world through the practice of being alive and living could we say that in that sense it's an islamic perspective of actually being and an experiential experience of islam as in as as your being as experiencing life and not a sort of analytical sit down work it out through knowledge yeah i mean there are a couple of analytical sufis but (laughs) i think I think that on the whole, that would be that would be a good approach to it. Okay, and in that sense, I mean, it does have many connections with Neoplatonism. Unfortunately for us, most of the initial original Neoplatonist practices are hinted at, but completely lost. So we don't even know if they really practiced. Um, yeah. But for but we are lucky in understanding that one of the first Sufist Neoplatonic connections I saw was the. Oh, actually, no, sorry, I'm jumping ahead, I'm jumping ahead. One thing I want to make clear is really the connection with Islam, because it is an yes. Islamic, so it is Islamic mysticism, and that current is always there, but from your book I got the understanding that there was many sort of sects and parts of it which became almost more universal, almost in a, just a, 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 an all-encompassing religion type idea. I mean, I think to the extent that Sufism means mysticism, it is universal because mm-hmm. mysticism is universal. And uh, at one point, there was a problem of how to translate mysticism into Arabic and Turkish. Mm-hmm. 
and um, one one solution was just to transliterate it and call it mysticism. Um, but another solution was to call it Sufism. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you get people in in the Muslim world talking about Islamic tasawwuf, Islamic Sufism. You think, well, what do they mean by this? The answer is they mean they they mean Islamic mysticism because they are they're using the word Sufism to mean to mean mysticism. But I mean historically in the Muslim world, we can follow the development of a number of organizations which are clearly part of the Muslim world and part of Islam. Now, uh, whether to what extent they are quote unquote orthodox is a slightly different question. This one is, is, is also complicated by the fact that it's, it's, it's very difficult to say what is orthodoxy in Islam, mm -hmm. because the way the religion is structured, uh, it isn't up to any one person. There's, there's no pope to determine what is orthodox and what isn't. So there's, there's room for an enormous variety of different interpretations which means that um, it's means that it's 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 sometimes it's possible to say what is clearly completely unorthodox in Islam. And occasionally some Sufis have tended a little in that direction. But but on the whole, Sufi practices and theology and so forth have remained within that very broad range of possible positions that we can call Islam. Mm -hmm. Is there any key changes to the sort of the religious ideas around Sufism when it when it does finally sort of make a clear um, appearance in the West? Because you referenced the text, yes. um, the treaties of the Turks a lot, which is this first, probably the first clear text we have in the what we now know as the West as something dealing with it in a very, very critical light. And it sort of shows, yes. you know, to me at least, I read that as well. Our history of Sufism as it, as it finally arrives in the West is a bit almost tainted as we can't appreciate what it actually was because all the texts we have on it are written from this other biased perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the treatise on the Turks is 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 an amazing text, and I think somebody's got to translate it into English one day and publish it because it really is such an amazing text. And I mean, on the one hand, it's very critical, but on the other hand, it's I mean, you know, the, 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 as 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 you as as you know, uh, the, the basic line of the treatise on the Turks is. If you look at the Turks, you may think they're incredibly civilized with an incredibly marvelous religion. And if you get to know the, 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 the Sufism well, as I did, you might think that it was so marvelous that you might decide to become a Sufi and convert to Islam, which I, um, well, um, let's talk about something else. Uh, the reason, hmm. the reason for this is that it's very easy to be deceived by the devil. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, he's describing Sufism in, in, in very accurate and very, very sympathetic terms. 
And, you know, frankly, I think it's completely clear that he did actually convert and become a Sufi. <laughs> they won't admit this. Um, but on the other hand, you know, he's, 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 he's writing in Europe at a point when Europe is very much under threat from, from, from the Turks. He's writing before the Turks lose their last attempt to capture Vienna. He's writing at a point when it's quite conceivable that the Turkish expansion is going to carry on uh, through through Western Europe. So it's you know it's, it's a bit it's a bit like writing about the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. I mean, these guys are the other, and he's, mm-hmm. he's he is therefore very very critical of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. What effect do you think that had on the way that Sufism grew in the West over time? I, I think that that phase of reception, the very early reception there, was overlaid by a later a later layer of understandings. And I mean, there we've got the 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 first the first Sufi text to be translated into Latin and then into other European languages, uh, which is Hayabin Yaksan. And this is, or this is the, the, the Latin translation is given the title, The Self-Taught Philosopher. And this text, which is what, a couple of hundred years later, this this text is received very favorably and in some circles quite enthusiastically. The people, oddly, the people who are reading this and, and receiving it so enthusiastically do not actually realize that they're reading a Sufi text. Um, they think they're reading a philosophical text but what do we mean by philosophy of course uh, they think they're reading a philosophical text and they think that they are reading a deist text they think that they're reading a text in defense of rationalism which they bring into a discussion which has been going on in the early enlightenment period in europe about the relative authority of religious revelation of the Christian churches and of individual human reason, which is of course central to the to the Enlightenment. So uh, that text is is understood by many people as being sort of pro-Enlightenment. And that is a new understanding which grows during between the Enlightenment and what the 19th century. And it's really that understanding of Sufism that sets the scene in Europe and, and then especially in, in the 19th century in the United States, that sets the scene to receive the real life Sufis when they start appearing in the West. It's strange that you, you mentioned that you, they didn't even realize that they were reading a, a Sufi text. I mean, I had this this feeling recently. Someone recommended me the the, the Walled Garden of Truth. I think is that the name. I think it's just called the Walled Garden, which is a Sufi text which I read recently. Yes. And that that when I was reading it, that came across the same way that there wasn't there didn't seem to be too much in it which 
which discerns itself as you know a specifically Sufiist thing was this was was this a common theme well I think I think this is because what what we're we're seeing here is the way that organisationally Sufism is distinct in Islamic culture I mean uh, this organisation here is a Sufi order this organisation here uh, is um, is 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 fomenting the roads and, and clearing the canals, yeah? mm-hmm. uh, and they're two clearly distinct organisations. But with thought, Sufis were part of the mainstream of Islamic thought and literature. So very often, if you take if you take certain poems, the Sufi. Sufi poetry became so popular mm. and so influential that the, the 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 techniques and images of Sufi poetry were used by all poets. So you can take uh, a, somebody like um, Omar Khayyam, for example, and. You can read him, and is he a Sufi or is he just writing like a Sufi? What are it? And people have been arguing about this for, for, for an awful long time. I mean, even Hafiz, uh, who is is very often read in the West as a Sufi poet, but in in Iran, uh, people are not so sure. So I think you know this is this it's it, this is is partly why people didn't recognize this as being a Sufi text. I mean, also, um, you need to know a bit about Sufism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that in the end, when the, when Haibin Yaksan, having having worked out that there has to be a first cause, which could be referred to as the one, uh, decides that it'd be nice to approach the one he tries spiritual exercises, including fasting, staying up all night, and turning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, if you don't know anything about Sufism, you think, okay, so that's what he did. If you do know something about Sufism, you think, well, that sounds very familiar. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you've got anybody who is following those those particular practices, you know, this this is a description of the practices that a Sufi would do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I mean, d- diving in on the the Sufi practices, I think the the these these were the sections that really interested me because I think what interested me the most was whether or not there was big changes in that move from the east to the west. You know, theoretically speaking, because Sufism is obviously still going on in the east as it is in the west, so it's still there. But there's obviously two currents, and whether or not there's changes from the, I guess you'd say, the heredity of the the zones whether or not that changes the actual practice and the, the first thing that really appeared in the book as well it's just been there from the very beginning is is a what we'd now understand as asceticism and the ascetic practice and the uh, a certain understanding of the body which is yeah. an understanding of really of it uh, at most as as a as a vessel for experiment and not anything to be taken in i don't know any any certain sacred way which comes from the really comes from Plotinus's absolute 
loathsome relationship with his own body. I mean, he absolutely hated it, didn't he? He wouldn't even have a picture of himself made. Um, so do, does this ascetic practice, does it stay there or does it change as it comes into the West? When, I mean, Sufism starts with ascetic practice. The first people who are ever identified as Sufis, the first people we we hear of and have accounts of their life, they are all ascetics. And they are they are super ascetics. So um, certainly asceticism is extremely important in, in Sufi practice at the very beginning. With, within Sufism in the Muslim world, uh, as Sufism becomes visible later, this extreme ascetic practice is no longer the norm. Mm -hmm. So if we are looking at Sufism in 18th century Egypt, for example, yes, there are some people who are uh, following extreme ascetic practices. And it's there as an ideal. But, you know, the farmers in the village I was referring to earlier. Um, yes, I mean, okay, they may fast a couple of days on top of Ramadan, you know, but they're not locking themselves up in caves for 40 days or anything like that. So there's, there's you know, there's a variety of degrees of assertive practice mm -hmm. in mature Sufism over the last few centuries in, in the Muslim world. And this carries over to the West. So when Sufism originally appears in the West, you, you, you typically you've got a, gr a small group of people who have been reading about Sufism and they've got very interested in it. And they invite somebody over from 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 Turkey or Sri Lanka or, or, or something like that. And, and this guy turns up and he sort of sits down and, and he tries to work out you know, who these people are who've invited him and what, what they actually want and so forth. Now, initially, he's, he's not going to say, you know, hold on, guys, you've got it all completely wrong. <laughs> Let me explain how it really works. So, I mean, obviously, you, you, you're not going to guess anywhere with that sort of approach. So initially, they say, oh, well, that's very interesting. That's marvelous, isn't it? You know, mashallah, how nice. Um, and then slowly, they try to teach people, which is, of course, fundamental to Sufism in the Muslim world as well. It's fundamental, actually, to most religions, isn't it? You, that you, you, you teach people according to their level. I mean, you know, this is this is fundamental to teaching in a university, a first year class and, a, and, a, and, a, and an MA class. You, you teach in, in different ways, different levels. So these Sufi sheikhs are doing precisely that. And the, the, the extreme ascetic practices, I mean, that's, that's the postdoctoral degree. It's not the first year undergraduate. <laughs> so um, we, you know, we, 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 we do end up with very serious ascetic practices in the West, just as in, in the Muslim world. But you know, in, both, in both areas, this is not entry level. Mm -hmm. And I mean, of course, ascetic practices have, I think, probably declined everywhere 
in the Muslim world as well with with modernity. And one of the one of the things that is is very notable is that I, I mentioned earlier locking yourself up in a cave for forty days. That the forty day retreat didn't actually have to lock yourself up, but the forty day retreat used to be pretty standard mm-hmm. at a certain level. Now. You know, nowadays, how, how many weeks holiday do, do most people get each year? Um, you know, so, so just for purely practical reasons, uh, that, that, that one has, has been abandoned mostly, or it's far less frequent than it used to be. Uh, okay, so it's not so much that it came to the West and because of West, the Western ideals it changed, it's because generally a general level of modernization everywhere, you ideals or what's possible changes everywhere it does always make me wonder how a someone you know if you had a town sort of monk who was tucked away in a woods or a cave somewhere how that would be approached these days sort of if they you know is there a possibility for modern day desert fathers or sort of as you say higher level sufis yeah, to exist no, in that I'm, way anymore I, th- I think i think it's possible but it's it's more difficult and there are people like that, but probably fewer than there would have been in an earlier age. Okay. And I guess how they'd be seen now is, is different. It, it probably used to be not so much the norm, but not surprising. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I mean, one one thing as well that's... When we, when we talk about like how... We've spoken about how Sufism, if people had heard of it, or if people have heard of it, perhaps even now or when it you know, started to arise in the West, one thing that they would pop into our mind would be would be the idea of a dervishes. Now, this seems to have sort of overtaken the the aesthetic understanding of what a Sufi is. You know, you, you think of this almost whirling, beautiful madness. Yes. And is there, is there any truth to that as being, you know, uh, almost an anchor for the Sufist tradition? Or is it has it stuck because of its because it's so memorable? <sighs> Uh, you've got, I mean, okay, I think I think the first thing that one has to say is that, strictly speaking, a Sufi and a Dervish are, are actually more or less the same thing. Mm-hmm. That in the East, in, in the Persian world and in Turkey, you tend to use the word Dervish, mm-hmm. which, which comes from Persian. Uh, whereas in the Arab world, you tend to tend to use the word Sufi, which which comes from Arabic. So uh, in some ways, they're the same thing. But the 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 word dervish in in English and European languages, same in, in French and German, brings to mind these these 19th century pictures of whirling dervishes and howling dervishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also there are these extraordinary 19th century Orientalist paintings by, by people like uh, Jean-Léon Jérôme, whose very famous painting of uh, a, a snake charmer appeared on the cover of one uh, edition of Edward Said's Orientalism, and this, you know, this is it's 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 like many Orientalist paintings of the nineteenth century, and actually especially paintings by Jérôme, wherever he was. It, it's sort of halfway between the artistic and the pornographic. 
And this snake charmer isn't identified as a dervish or a Sufi, but actually snake charmers tended to belong to a particular Sufi order. So there is a sort of connection there but, but, but with, with Sufism. So we, we've, got, we've got this 19th century imagination of the exotic East and all sorts of strange ideas about, about sexuality tend to get mixed up into that as well. And, and this did certainly produce a certain image and understanding of Sufism which still exists today, I think. And if you go to if you go to Istanbul, they do um, tourist shows of the the whirling dervishes, which don't have an awful lot, most of them, to do with with, with, with real Sufism, and they have they have you know they have quite a lot to do with entertaining tourists. <laughs> but I mean, that idea of the exotic East is a really I mean that's an important one. For me, for me especially, because there's 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 an interesting link that you you bring in between the the Mahamata or the Mahatma claims of Blavatsky, which are these yes. Tibetan masters, which many Theosophists have spent years and years trying to find any truth to these claims, and I think some have even gone to the lengths of trying to find them. Um, and then later on, after this, is the ancient masters, um, some of which are the Sangmum Samung brotherhood which supposedly according to Gurdjieff Jesus attended and uh, is it Ralph Raphael Lefort writes a book The Teachers of Gurdjieff where he tries to seek these out though I think that's been somewhat proven to be a myth whether or not he did it who knows or whoever that author is it's that strange side of Gurdjieff literature and then Bennett goes on to write about these masters as well as if as if he knows any more um so this sort of brings in that exotic eastern idea into the west from Gurdjieff and Bennett who are and Blavatsky who are taking from the Sufist Sufis yeah. thing is there any truth to these sorts of claims in Sufist literature that there that there's such a people you know exist or is this a western dramatization to sort of popularize it I think it's I think it's I think it's 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 largely western I mean in in any religious tradition you have bits where somebody says, yes, I got this from somebody impressive. <laughs> I, Moses, went up a mountain. <laughs> um, I uh, met the angel Moroni. Um, and, I mean, S- Sufis, within Sufism... The, the whole question of the interpretation of dreams is very live and uh, within Islam. I mean, what, what, you know, what, what happens if you as a Muslim dream of the Prophet Muhammad? You know, can you just say I ate too much cheese last night? <laughs> or is this some sort of a communication from, from the transcendent? So, so, I mean, Sufis do operate with the idea of communications from the transcendent. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, they, they are not Mahatmas. Um, and they, um, 
th that the whole the whole Sarmung story that we find in Gurdjieff uh, is, in my view, it's it's a mistake to take it literally. You know, I mean, when you read Gurdjieff, he, you know, he, th there wasn't actually a spaceship, right? <laughs> he um, makes this clear as well. So, I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic to. To what you're saying here is he even I think he even says at the start of might have been meetings with remarkable men he says the West doesn't know how to read allegorically. Yeah, and... well, it's clearly <laughs> allegorical. I mean, it's clearly allegorical. And when when you read meetings with remarkable men, I mean, it's 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 also clear that the 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 Gorgiev did know something about Sufism. He had met some Sufis, mm -hmm. um, but when he seems to be talking about Sufis, he doesn't identify them as Sufis. Mm -hmm. And the people who he does identify as Sufis, the Sarmung, do not sound like Sufis at all. <laughs> so, you know, it it I, um, it seems to me clear that, that it was really never intended to be to be taken as, as literally true. This. Now, Bennett tried terribly hard. I mean, Bennett did take it uh, uh, literally. And he put an enormous amount of time and effort into trying to identify the sermon. And he, you know, he constructed a theory whereby it might be a branch of something or other that ended up joining with Nakshbandeya. And Nakshbandeya does exist, and we knew this, and, 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 um, and he knew this. But I mean, he, he, you know, Bennett's travels through Turkey. And, and Syria, meeting real Sufis, and also because Bennett spoke very good Ottoman Turkish. So he was in a position to talk to these people, you know, to, to really understand what they were saying. So he met, he met real Sufis. This is one of the things that I don't quite understand about Bennett, that, that he met these real Sufis and he stayed with them and he actually became a real Sufi. Mm -hmm. And then he said, no, actually, that isn't what Gurdjieff was talking about. Bye-bye, I'm going back to England. And, I mean, how he, how he kept this idea that the sermon must be really true, despite everything he discovered, despite everything he knew, I find, I find very difficult to understand how, how this happened. But he did. Mm -hmm. And then and then he hands over everything to Idris Shah at the end. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's another that's another mystery. <laughs> but I think Bennett well, Bennett's a mystery. He's sort of a uh, I think he's a bit of a persona non grata as well for many um for the Gurdjieff. You know, uh, one side of Gurdjieff doesn't yeah, really yeah. want much to do with yeah. him. Um, but yeah, I mean, has the Gurdjieff Bennett appreciation and, and extension of Sufism, has that altered how our understanding in the West or is that more of a smaller esoteric type tradition just to their own thing? I mean, I think you mentioned Idris Shah and Idris Shah was for a while... Uh, extremely influential i mean in in you know his book on the sufis in the 70s in the 80s you know, this was how if 
if the average Westerner knew anything about. So Fism may knew it from that book. And, and that book uh, and, 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 and Shah's other writings uh, draw quite a lot, I think, on the Gurdjieff tradition. Mm-hmm. So, and, and as you as you as you as you just mentioned, there was this um, this this encounter of, of Gurdjieff and Bennett. So there's you know there's there's quite a, there's a connection there as well. So I think that in some ways the Shah-based understanding of Sufism was actually Gurdjieff-based. Mm-hmm. So yes, there is. Uh, an impact there. There's also an impact through the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And what we what we have here, the Enneagram is a bit like the Sarmung, because you know, the Enneagram is 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 very ancient and possibly of Sufi origin. Mm-hmm. So let really? us indeed read Bennett. Yeah, Bennett, Bennett comes up with this. Well, theory. Well, okay. Do you, do you ah, know the theory? I'd love to hear the theory. I would actually have to check this. I'm pretty sure it's Bennett who comes okay. up with this theory, but I would actually have to double check that. So let's leave the Bennett bit out okay. here. Okay. Let's come back. So, so the the idea develops that the Enneagram is of Sufi origin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you therefore get various Enneagram people, people who are working with the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Who are Sufis mm-hmm. and start teaching the Sufi Enneagram. And all of these people have in their teachings, they have a mixture of Sufism and of Enneagram teaching. And of course, Enneagram teaching, mature Enneagram teaching, is a bit different from Gurdjieff Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that that goes several stages further, and the if you if you look at different people who are working with the Sufi Enneagram, sometimes it's 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 very Sufi and a bit Enneagram, and sometimes it's very Enneagram and a bit Sufi, and there, mm-hmm. there are various possibilities between that. So the 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 yes, I mean, long answer to your question, the the Gurdjieff tradition does have a certain impact on. The Western understanding of Sufism. I think much more important, though, is actually at the very beginning is the whole impact of the Theosophical Society. Really? Because it's the Theosophical understanding of Sufism that we find with the followers of Inayat Khan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Inayat Khan is is the first the first person to establish Sufism in the West. Mm-hmm. So for for, for 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 several decades, we've we've really got one understanding of Sufism organized happening in in the West. I mean if in if in 1925 you you know Google how do I become a Sufi? Uh, you 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 will end up with the organization that Inayat Khan founded, and you will end up with an organization in which an awful lot of the leading members are former theosophists, mm-hmm. and who have brought a lot of their understandings with them. 
Mm-hmm. I see, I see. Blavatsky and, the, and Theosophy seems to have sort of fallen fallen by the wayside recently. Yes, and this this is this is very very strange in some ways that something which expands so fast and becomes so popular mm-hmm. sort of collapses and vanishes. I mean, it's still you know it's still around. It's still around, but it used to be the biggest thing in alternative religion, and it certainly is not that any longer. No. And I mean, this is this is something that I haven't really uh, looked into in in, in in detail myself. But the whole the whole Jiddu Krishnamurti business, I think, has something to do with that. But you know, you you announce the world teacher. Mm-hmm. And then the world teacher says, hold on, actually, sorry, I'm not the world teacher. That was a misunderstanding. I mean, I, I, I think it'd be very difficult for, for any movement to survive that sort of setback. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sort of brings me to, brings me to uh, a question just relating to, to contemporary Suf- Sufism. I mean, you know, you mentioned that the book doesn't go exactly up to the present day. It'd be very difficult to sort of list everything that's going on in the present day but is, is there any clear areas where the the currents that you've mentioned in your book there is still these lineages which find themselves connected to these you know these these historical lines yes i mean most of them are still around mm-hmm. and most of them have become more islamic recently and I think this this is part of the the globalization that that we have today. You know, when you were asking earlier about can one distinguish between West and East, and I was saying that they're they're intermingling so much today. So uh, you have you have in the West today people of Muslim ancestry mm-hmm. who have been to been through the same educational experiences as, as you did. I'm not sure what it was, but you know, sort of guessing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and 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 just just as you came out of, of that experience and all your reading with all sorts of interests and ideas and inspirations and I don't know what else. Uh, there, there, there are people of Muslim background who, who've, who've been reading the same books and, and thinking the same thoughts. And when they go around to the local mosque and sort of try to have a conversation with the imam, mm-hmm. the chances that the imam is going to be able to say anything that makes any sense to them at all mm-hmm. Is pretty small. So um, where do these guys go? Well, they may end up in in one of these Sufi orders of Western origin where they can be with people who have, who have been reading the same sort of books and the same sort of thoughts. Mm-hmm. So uh, on, on the one hand, a lot of the older... Western Sufi organizations are moving in in an Islamic direction. And simultaneously, a certain number of Western-born, Western-educated 
Muslims are moving towards these long-established Western Sufi organizations. So, you know, what starts off as Sufism dividing, in a sense, into a Muslim world part and a Western part. Of course, it didn't really divide them. Muslim world part was much, much bigger, but conceptually it divided. What starts as this division, a hundred years later, the two seem to be coming back together again. Hmm. So do you, do you think that's a way for, for for to sort of retain the, that's quite a cheap word, but to retain the spirit of Sufism in the face of an almost Genon type modernity, you know, to find a, a haven to retain something in the globalized in globalized modernity. Difficult question. Yes, possibly. And I mean, Genon wouldn't have really welcomed this at all. But I mean, if one thinks that it's a way of retaining something, how do you retain something? Well. You either set up a very high fence with barbed wire on the top and surround yourself with this and mm-hmm. say, outside world, go away. Or you put up a little slightly symbolic fence that you can actually step over when you want to mm-hmm. and say, you know, we are separate, but we are part of this. Mm-hmm. So this, this, the strategy of trying to keep the outside world completely away, there are some people who do this. You know, I mean, the Amish, as far mm-hmm. as I know, not that I know much about the Amish, um, certain, certain sorts of, of, of very ultra-Orthodox Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, this, is, this is very hard. This is really very hard to do. To, to keep to keep the outside world completely away in that fashion. A strategy which says, yes, in these ways we compromise, in these ways we're part of, of, of the of this of the surrounding world, but you know, we we're doing our own thing. That sort of strategy is probably much more successful, I think brings its own dangers with it. But in some ways you can say that this this is what some of the of, of the of the long established Western Sufi orders are, are doing today. And you, know, you can you can see this one of the big issues always is gender. Mm-hmm. Because you know when you are doing a Sufi ceremony do the boys and the girls do it together or do we put the boys over there and the girls over there? Mm-hmm. And anywhere in the Muslim world, until very recently, you're going to put the boys over there and the girls over there. Mm-hmm. But in a Western context, a modern Western context, as soon as you start trying to do that gender segregation, People get uncomfortable because you know it's it's not it's not a it's not a Western custom. I mean, we 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 don't we don't do that sort of gender segregation. We mix we mix the boys and girls together. So you know, how do we deal with this? 
And some Sufi orders say, okay, we're gonna follow, we're gonna we're, we're gonna follow standard Western gender norms. We're gonna let people mix together. Or some people say, you know, we're gonna to mix together most of the time, but for this particular ritual, we're gonna have the boys over there and the girls over there. But anyhow, that that sort of that sort of compromise can make you much stronger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Gaynon would not agree with this. Mm-hmm. Gaynon would say, as soon as you compromise with modernity, you're lost. And who wants to compromise with modernity anyhow, because the whole thing's about to collapse into ruins. <laughs> did he? Did he have dates? He didn't have dates. Oh, okay. Well, he did. Have, he did. He did. He 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 worked. He worked with the Hindu. Uh, chronology, but then he said that, of course, these periods are are symbolic. Well, it's easy to say these things when there's no dates. <laughs> um, okay, okay. I mean, is there anything you'd you'd like to add about the book that you feel um, we've missed that is key? I think you covered most of it fairly well. Whereabouts can we we find it? Is it just available almost anywhere? Yeah, should be. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't think you. I don't think it's on sale at the sale at the station bookstore. But I don't think we have station bookstores any longer, do we? So um, <laughs> I think Amazon might be a good place. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And you say you're you're working on uh, something else at the moment, a new project. Yes. I mean, what I'm what, what I'm working on now is uh, a book on on traditionalism. That's to say, on on Gaynor's philosophy and how it's been developed by other people and this this i'm i'm doing for for penguin and the challenge uh really that 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 is is to is to explain what it is about this philosophy that has proved so attractive to so many people mm-hmm. and you know, this this i mean traditionalism suddenly became famous uh, with President Trump when it turned out that President Trump's advisor, Steve Bannon, had been been reading Gaynor. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, suddenly everybody's saying, you know, what, what's going on here? And the, 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 the idea is that it's, it's clear that traditionalism has been, it's inspired an awful lot of people in an awful lot of places, um, but nobody really knows why or what it is. So this is this is what I'm trying to do, is try to explain traditionalism to people who are not traditionalists and are probably never going to become traditionalists. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the next project. Okay, I'll ask you the the horrible question: when 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 will that be ready? <laughs> if we're lucky, um, it'll come out. It'll come out next year. I meant to hand I meant to hand in the manuscript uh, at the end of the summer. Okay, so oh. if, if if everything goes well next year, okay, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, yeah, unless there's anything you'd like to add, I think that's a good place to to finish up. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks very much, Mark.